chapter 2. We started a series in the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is only four chapters long. Uh, We're going to take a lot longer than four weeks to get through this book uh, because we began to realize there's a lot of great content in it that we don't want to just simply go through very quickly and lose sight of the larger storyline of what's happening here. So what I want to do right now is I want to start, I want to pray, and uh, then we'll get to work. So God, we give you thanks that your word is God-breathed, that we can rely upon it, we can depend upon it, we thank you that we can look at it and realize that you're in the story, you're moving, you're working, and God, you have given us your word so that we can look for traces and evidences of your grace in our lives currently, right now. So God, we pray that you would help your word to go forth. God, even right now I ask you that you forgive me for things that I would say that are not consistent with your heart or things that may not be properly representative of you. Forgive my sins. And God, let your word go forth unhindered to bring forth faith and confidence in our heart towards you. And uh, we ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I want to basically jump in by pointing out Throughout the book of Ruth, there's two big, massive problems that sort of arise in the narrative that we'll take a look at. Um, the next slide, we'll kind of lay these out. The two big problems are food and family. So the storyline is this, in short. It's two women that have gone through very traumatic, very life-altering circumstances in their life, um, one of which is a lady by the name of Naomi. She's the uh, older mother-in-law, and another lady is by the name of Ruth. Uh, she's the daughter-in-law. Naomi had a husband and two sons. Uh, Ruth enters the story because she's married to one of Naomi's sons. At some point throughout the storyline, we're not told exactly when, nor are we given any details as to how. In just a simple, quick, short verse, we're told that uh, Naomi's husband, uh, Elimelech, died. And we're told that Naomi's two sons, uh, Malon and Chilion, also died. So not only did did Naomi lose a husband, she also lost two sons in a moment, and then so did also Ruth. She lost her husband. Uh, To add to the affliction for Ruth, um, Ruth not only lost a husband, but she was also infertile. She never had a baby. So Ruth makes a decision to follow her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to the region of Israel. And so they enter on this trek back into the land of Israel kind of enter into chapter 1 again. Uh, When they go back into the city or in the region of Jerusalem, or I'm sorry, the region of Bethlehem, um, Naomi's name literally means sweetness. And the people of the city went out to go see her, and they said, you know, sweetness is back. She's back, and we're happy, and we want to celebrate. And then Naomi responds by correcting them, saying, don't call me Naomi because I'm not sweet. Call me Mara because I'm actually bitter. God has brought devastating circumstances into my life. So the first problem we see throughout the whole book is that both of these ladies find themselves with the, within the absence of food and family. Uh, famine seems to be something that follows them around. Um, and then also the loss of family. Uh, they both lost husbands, so they're both widows. And they've, um, in this particular case, Ruth is infertile. So they found themselves without any family or any hope of ever having a family again. Because of the fact Ruth was married for up to 10 years prior, she never had a child. Now, not only uh, is her husband gone, but she has no children to carry on the family name. Uh, not having a family uh, to carry on your name in that culture 
basically meant that you were, for the most part, left out in the open. There's nothing to cover you, nothing to protect you, nothing to overshadow you, nothing to help you. You're basically kind of having to fend for yourself. And so the dilemma in the story with regard to food and family, these are both two big puzzles or problems in the puzzle that God, by the time the storyline is over, he's going to solve. And this is what's beautiful about the storyline with regard to this book. God has a solution to bring about within the story. And that's what the story is building up to because God is going to work all of this out for good. So those are the two problems that we see basically that are throughout the story. Uh, the next two things that I want you to notice is there's two massive lessons that the storyline throughout the book is really trying to convey to us. The first of which is that God truly loves his people even in spite of how they wrongly interpret the present circumstances. In other words, the narrator of the story wants to kind of always keep us on the edge of our seat trying to figure out what's going to happen next. But what we see throughout the storyline is that there's all these afflictions falling upon Naomi, falling upon Ruth, and all of the circumstances that have come into their lives would lead most people to just assume or to assess that God's, God's not working here. God's not moving here. God doesn't love them here. God's not taking care of them. That something has happened, something has taken place in which God has pulled back. God is not lending his wing to bring covering over them or overshadowing them. God has stopped loving them. A word that's going to appear throughout the book, we'll get into it in the next couple weeks, that only appears three times, um, actually in explicit form, but it's all throughout the entire book as implied. And it's the word said. It's a very important Hebrew word. Like I said, I won't spend time looking at it today, but it's really sort of the summary of the book, that even in spite of adverse circumstances, throughout the storyline of Ruth and Naomi's life, that God's said has actually not left them. Even though they would wrongly interpret the fact in their minds that God did stop loving them. Remember, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. For Naomi, the issue really that was going on in her life was not that she went through bad circumstances and decided, I'm going to be an atheist. It's the way we oftentimes are. Really horrible circumstances happen in our lives, and the first question we ask is, where's God? That's it. I'm going to be an atheist. I won't believe in him. If he's going to do this to me, if he's going to cause this to happen to our life, I choose to not believe in him. End of story. That's not what Naomi does. In fact, quite the opposite. Naomi basically looks at the fact and says, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. God's a God of said. God has shown characteristic kindness to the people of Israel all throughout their history. The real dilemma for Naomi was because of the circumstances that had befallen her, she questioned not whether or not God is loving in a general sense. She questioned whether or not is God loving to me. That's the big issue. And that's how we oftentimes misinterpret God's hand in our lives, especially in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of loss, in the midst of losing a job, in the midst of not getting married, in the midst of not getting the career we hoped to get, in the midst of losing our house, in the midst of being buried under enormous amount of debt, in the midst of you know, cancer, in the midst of whatever types of laws we find, loss we find ourselves encountered by or with, we oftentimes question, does God love me? Does he care about me? And Naomi, if you were to ask her who's the number one enemy in your life, she certainly wouldn't say the Moabites. She certainly wouldn't say the Canaanites. I think Naomi would say, my number one enemy is God. For some reason, he's turned on me. I don't know why. That's the way Naomi thought. 
And yet the story really wants to demonstrate the fact, because we, we have this beautiful advantage that Naomi didn't have, that Ruth didn't have, because we have this narrator guiding us through this tour of the storyline of their life. They we're able to kind of at one moment be in the middle of the story, saturated by their pain. In another moment, it's as if the narrator picks us up, allows us to look down and see the beginning from the end and realize, no, 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 God has not turned against them. That God's actually plotting something beyond their comprehension. That the pain they encountered is actually setting the stage, posturing them for something amazing. But they don't know it yet because they're right in the middle of the chapter. Okay? Uh, the second thing we see is that God demonstrates his love by working all things for, uh, to, together for good. We see this pre- predominantly demonstrated in the New Testament, obviously through the cross. That if you were to pause Jesus on the cross, so for example, you're watching the movie The Passion of the Christ, and you never seen the movie. You never knew the outcome. Now, obviously, The Passion of the Christ is not the best example of this because there's this, like, one millisecond at the end of the movie that demonstrates the resurrection. And Mel Gibson's point was to emphasize the passion of the Christ. That's why it's not called the resurrection of the Christ. It's emphasizing the pain and the torture of Christ. But if you were to pause, if you had no idea the outcome of the movie and you stopped sort of, you know, the first few moments when Christ was on the cross and you saw the excruciating pain and the blood and all of the agonizing effects that were going on in Jesus and just stop the scene right there and ask somebody, okay, give commentary, what's going on? Most of us, I think, would look at that and be like, this is horrible. God has totally abandoned Jesus. There's no hope, nothing good that will ever come out of this scenario. But we know the end of the story, don't we? We know that's not true. We know that what's happened is that we've given our commentary based upon limited information, based upon only being partway into the story. But we know the end of the story, that God actually crushed his son, but ultimately died for three days, but rose again the third day. We know the same thing with Ruth and Naomi, that they were crushed, they went through the torment, they went through pain, they went through agonizing difficulty, and yet, out the end, God was actually doing something behind the scenes that was for their good. So here's the question. What if... What if God, in the middle of our pain and our suffering and our hardships and our losses, is actually not intending those things in order to destroy us, but rather, what if in the middle of all of this, God was actually plotting for our good? What if that's the truth? What if that's what's really happening? then what that would mean is that, that all of our false interpretations on who God is and what God is doing and why would God do this and all of our critiques upon God and all of our accusations poised to his sovereignty, all of these things basically would amount to nothing and prove in the end that we misunderstood God's intentions. And the book of Ruth actually is, is, is telling us that, no, what God is doing amounts to taking a plow one of my favorite writers um, was a guy by the name of Samuel Rutherford. He was a Scottish preacher, and he was thrown in prison. And when he was in prison, he would write these letters to his people in his church. And he, he describes this picture, and he always uses this amazing imagery. And he describes as if what God's doing in our lives, he takes this plow. Imagine if you were the, if you were the ground, 
and the soil is being broken up. I mean, they would have these big, massive plows, and you can imagine seeing the ground being broken up, big chunks of dirt being just gouged out and pain. So if you were the earth, like if the earth had a voice, how much pain would that be bringing into the actual side of the earth? And yet he uses this imagery to say that actually what's happening is all that soil is being broken up in order to plant seed in it so that something beautiful would be birthed out of it. What if that's what God's doing in our life? What if that's what, was God, that's what God was actually doing in Naomi and Ruth's life? And again, we know the story because the narrator gives us this advantage point that they didn't have and shows that that's exactly what God was doing in their life. But yes, there was pain. Yes, there was hardship. Yes, there was agonizing difficulty. Yet God was always, nonetheless, at work plotting for their real deep joy because we know at the very end of the story um, that the narrator actually tells us that from the lineage of Ruth would come a son that would be the greatest king in all Israel, David. But that's the extent that the narrator knew at the time. We know from several hundred years later after reading the book that the greatest king would come out of the lineage of David, the Messiah. Like how amazing is that? To think that God will actually take a broken down, widowed woman who's lost everything, her husband, her two sons, another lady by the name of Ruth who has lost her husband, who's infertile, who's lost everything. She's going to go be a foreigner in a strange land, doesn't know anybody, doesn't know the customs, doesn't know how things work, and yet God actually inducts them, brings them into one of the most richest blessings they couldn't even imagine. Like, what if that's what God's doing in your life? What if that's what he's actually plotting in your life? That's why I think the book of Ruth is so encouraging for us because it helps us to see that in a lot of ways maybe this is what God's doing. What I want to do right now is I'm going to jump in. I want to take a look at a couple verses, pick it about verse 1. We'll kind of just make our way through this. It says this, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. You need to know that the way the Jewish structure would work is that back in the Jewish history uh, they would have tribes. And underneath the tribes, you would have clans. Underneath the clans, you would have a family. So there were basically 12 tribes throughout the people of Israel, throughout the entire nation. And then in those tribes, you have these clans. And in this particular clan, we're actually told by the narrator that uh, there was a man. Uh, he was actually of the clan of Elimelech. Why is Elimelech important? Because Elimelech was uh, Naomi's deceased husband. Now remember, all of this revolves around the grief of a woman by the name of Naomi. She's lost her husband. In her mind, she thinks she'll never have a son again. She'll never have children again. She'll never have anybody to take care of her family name. And she doesn't think that she'll ever be able to get food. Like, she'll starve to death, and she'll never have a family. Again, remember back to the two problems. No food, no family, and God's my biggest enemy. How am I going to survive? And so the narrator lets us into this little secret the characters of the story have no idea about. So here's what he says, uh, or she, whoever wrote this. And Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, and it says, and his name was Boaz. This is a really interesting way, actually, the narrator writes this, because most of the time in the Bible, because the Bible in a lot of ways is just sort of a reflection upon a culture about what was happening. So sometimes people wrongly assume that just because it's in the Bible, that that's, you know, that was how God viewed it. So for example, if a man's got like, 30 wives are like, well, see, the Bible actually teaches, 
you know, polygamy. Like, in reality, no, it doesn't. Like, uh, there's a difference between um, principles that are, are, you know, just simply implied, and then there's things that are ordered for us to do. I mean, the Bible never says, go out and marry 30 wives. In fact, it advises, just marry one wife. Like, that's good. Like, 30 wives, not good. But the Bible records the fact that in some cases, some men married a lot of wives. So in this particular case, it's going to just simply reflect the fact that for the most part, in those ancient cultures, men were the dominant force. They had the power, they had the smarts, they had the might, they had the money, they had the influence and the affluence throughout the entire culture. So in this particular setting, what you see here is sort of a reversal. Like God says, I want you to meet Boaz, and he introduces Boaz standing alongside Naomi's family line, which most of the time in the Bible, whenever a woman's introduced, it's usually because there's a baby in her hands or because she's married to a dude, all right? And so most of the time, women find their place in biblical times, their identity is somehow associated to either having a baby or having a husband. And as if God wants to demonstrate that's not the identity I gave them only, like their identity, that may be a function, their role, but I identify them as my children, and God, every once in a while, just th- sort of throws everything into this new rebalancing act to say, no, no, women are not insignificant. I love them. And so God actually, in a sense, sort of resets that and says, I'm going to introduce Boaz alongside of a woman and not introduce a woman alongside of a man. We're going to change it up a little bit. So Boaz is introduced in the story. He's of the lineage of Elimelech. This will be important. There's going to be a phrase I'm going to tell you guys in a couple weeks. I'll tell you it right now. I should say I'll define it for you in a couple weeks. I'll tell you right now. And it's a big phrase that's called a kinsman redeemer, all right? In short, it means someone who can come in and buy back or redeem. And kinsman just basically means part of the family. So it's as if the writer or the narrator wants us to hone in on this guy Boaz. He's going to be very significant, very important to the rest of the storyline. So as if to say... Uh, Naomi has a, re- a relative, his name is Boaz, he's of the same clan of her husband, deceased, her deceased husband. So that's an important little detail or fact that the narrator tells us. Uh, the next thing we're told in verse 2, it says, uh, let me go to the field and glean among the ears, ears of grain after him in whose sight I will find favor. And she said to her daughter, go my daughter. So now Ruth now goes in the field, and obviously, remember, the issue is food. They need food. Got to survive. Now, for some of us, obviously, we live in a culture that somehow has become very detached with where food comes from. You know, you ask most Americans, where does food come from? Bonds. Like, that's our answer, right? And the reality is, that's, that's, that's partially true. I mean, that's where we go buy our food, but there's this whole process behind how Vons actually gets the food. We've become very detached detached or disconnected from the way food is actually made and produced, and all we kind of see is sort of the outcome of it. So my point is that when we live in a culture like this, the idea of actually going in back into the field, gleaning, doesn't make a lot of sense to us. So back in that culture, the, the way that they would get food would not be to go to Vons. They would go back into the field, or they would go to various types of markets, kind of like our farmer's market, and they would get food from that particular area where they would either barter or they would give money or somehow to means and way to survive. And so because Ruth and Naomi are women of great disadvantage in this culture, because it's a male-dominated culture, they have no man over them. 
They have no sons to protect them, and they have no money. They've lost everything. So these two ladies are at a complete disadvantage in a very male-dominated culture, and they need food, and it would be great for them to have family, two things they don't have. So Ruth suggests to Naomi, I'm going to go glean. I'm going to go find some food and glean. So here's what gleaning is, right, for those of you that may not know. Gleaning is when you would go into a field, and you would basically pick up table scraps. Um, I'll read you a verse that kind of outlines this, because God actually made provision in the actual law and in the social order of the Jews, uh, for the people that were poor, the people that didn't have anything, so that they can survive. Here's what Leviticus chapter 23, 22 says. When you reap a harvest, this is speaking to the wealthy landowners, uh, when you reap a harvest in your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after the harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the foreigner. And God says, for I am the Lord your God. So God basically makes his provision in law. He says, look, the most important thing, you got a big plot of land, a lot of land, and you're going to produce crops on that land, God basically says the number one thing that I want you to use that land for is not your own personal uh, wealth and affluence. It's important. God's like, I don't want you to somehow milk everybody, let the rich get so rich, and so that you can take advantage of the poor. God says, that's not how I want the order to work. I want the order to work in such a way so that this is your land. You worked hard for it. I want you to glean it. I mean, or you can go over it and reap it. So you go through. You send your workers out. They take the first fruits of the harvest, and you, that's yours. You can use it however you want. It's yours. But then God made this provision. He says, only go over the land once. So that means that God says, so you imagine this big lot of land, say, off, you know, one-on-one. And after it's been reaped the first time, you go out the next day and you see all these homeless people out there or people that don't have a lot of money going out there, or welfare type people out there harvesting the land, taking their food, putting it into their little satchels and whatnot. And God says, this is how I want for the basic welfare system to work within the state. It's actually uh, a means of God's grace because God actually throws this little tagline at the end of the verse. He says, for I'm the Lord God. As if, God as if God's trying to say, this, I'm God, and I actually care about the people who have nothing to give. This is amazing. In fact, I would even go so far as to say this is the gospel in the Old Testament. This is God saying, I actually care about people that have absolutely no means, no abilities, no rights of their own, nothing of which to offer, to give. God says, I care about them, and I'm going to make provision for them. They have the right to go into the land, go into a field and glean, and they can partake of it. So, but what you need to understand is, too, is that there was a stigma attached to gleaning that was much like the stigma attached to people today who are going around with a big old plastic bag digging out aluminum cans out of trash cans downtown. Like, most people would look at people like that and sort of snub them. Like, think, I don't, I don't want to go talk to them. I don't want to go hang by them because that's sort of a dirty, low-life type of a existence, and I don't want to have any part of that. And in reality, that's the way gleaning was. It was not in any way. I mean, sometimes, you know, we see these pictures. I typed in gleaning. I did a Google search, and I looked up images. And most of the pictures were, like, of these, you know, middle-aged girls, like, like, 23, 24, like, long, flowing, beautiful, like, hair, silky soft. It's blowing in the wind. They're just, like, you know, they're picking stuff. And you think, that's not what gleaning looks like. I mean, you'd be all grimy and gritty and sweaty and you have funk all over your body. It's just, it's horrible work. On top of that, you're foraging with a bunch of lowlifes along with you that are just as greedy or just as ruthless as the next person. 
It was not pleasant. It wasn't nice. This is like survival. Um, this is like people who don't have anything, doing anything they can to get something in their hands because they're desperate. Imagine it's like a third world country. I was reading on the internet um, the other day kind of a news article. I think it might have even been Kenya or Uganda. Kind of this big, massive area where it's like this uh, big, high-tech um, wilderness where you know America has faithfully sent all of our worst computers to them over the years. So they've got like 50, 60, 100,000 computers that are like old IBM 386s that are just pieces of junk when you own them. We're like, you know what? You know who like this? Ugandans would like this. So we just send them over there, and they're like, we don't know how to use this thing. So they have these big, massive, just dumps full of all this high-tech trash. And, and they show this picture. It's being burnt, so all this, like, chemical, all these chemicals are in there. They're breathing it. Guys, they had a picture of a guy. He just got junk all over his face because there's gold in, in these things. So they actually burn them to kind of smelt out the gold and silver and other types of raw materials in these things. So it's literally just a wasteland. And these are people foraging for this stuff somehow to eke out a, some sort of existence. That's gleaning. That's gleaning. It's a horrible way of life. So Ruth basically says, I'm going to go out and glean. Her mom says, go for it. Verse 3 she says, so she went out and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. I love this. And she happened to come to the part of the field that belonged to Boaz, who, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Okay, couple things. One, we're told, first of all, in verse 2, that this is Ruth the Moabitess. Okay, why does the narrator again remind us that she's a Moabite? Like, we already know this fact. You don't need to keep repeating it. But the narrator wants to make certain we get it. Because the narrator is emphatic upon us making sure that we understand that what you have here is a lady who doesn't belong here. She's, she's an outcast. She's not accepted in the group. Like, this is how profound the stage is being set. She, just, she doesn't belong in Jewish culture, but here she is. I mean, Ruth is one of those ladies you should look at and be like, I admire this woman. I mean, her tenacity. To, to say, I'm going to just, I don't care if I'm the outcast. I don't care if I'm the minority. I've got a mother-in-law at home that's grieving, that's greatly depressed. I've lost my husband. We need to figure out a way to get food. We need to figure out if ever, maybe even family, might not ever, ever happen. But at least right now, I know we need food. So I'll go out to the field. I'll literally trudge through a bunch of, you know, greedy workers and somehow get myself some sort of food. And so the reality is she tells us in verse 3, again, the narrator writes in very ironic language and says, she just so happened to go to the field that belonged to Boaz. All right, the Hebrew is really interesting because the Hebrew literally, like if you were to translate this directly into English, it'd be like, as luck would have it, she just happened upon the field of Boaz. Now, we obviously know that God doesn't work, like, like luck is not, um, I heard someone say that, coincidence is not a kosher word, all right? Like, God doesn't work in coincidences. God doesn't work in luck. So, so why would the writer put this? And again, it's, it's this irony. It's just like, can you believe it as luck would have it? She just so happened to show up on guess whose field? Boaz. And he just so happens to be of the lineage in the same family of Naomi. He just so happens to be qualified as being a potential suitor 
be a husband. Now, Ruth doesn't know any of this yet. You got to understand this. Following the storyline. Um, we know this because this is a secret between us and the narrator. That's it. That's the only people in this point of the story that know this little important detail about what's happening here. But we read this and we sense, oh, so God hasn't abandoned them after all. We read this and this, this little verse should cause us to be amazed, to realize that even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of the difficulty that Ruth and Naomi had encountered, God is actually plotting, setting the stage for this unbelievable blessing that they have no ideas right around the corner from them. Still, they don't know. We know that because the narrator told us that little detail. But it goes on to tell us that she happened in this field. And the reality is, God just works this way. I remember um, several years ago when my wife and I were, were praying about, uh, we had gotten married when we were 20, um, 20 years old. So we just celebrated our, four, our 20, 40th, 40th birthday and our 20th anniversary. And so... Uh, when we were about 23 years old, I was kind of getting, 22 years old, I was kind of getting antsy. I felt like God was doing something in my heart, stirring me. I didn't know exactly what uh, I was supposed to do. I kind of knew I wanted to teach the Bible. I wanted to pastor church. I didn't know what that was going to look like. I didn't know what that, where that was going to be. And we had some friends that lived up in North, uh, Northern California. We went and visited them one day. We drove down. We just so happened to drive down the coast. And we just so happened to come into San Luis Obispo. And we just so happened two hours later, somehow San Luis Obispo came up in our conversation by the time we were in Ventura. And I told my wife, for some reason, I can't get San Luis Obispo out of my mind. My wife says, for some reason, I can't get San Luis Obispo out of my mind. And we said, well, what do you think that means? And both of us just kind of looked at each other and was like, huh, I don't know. Maybe God wants us just to pray. Like, pray for the city. I don't know. I have no idea. Um, so we just started praying. And the next week, I thought, you know, make some phone calls and see if there's anybody, you know, doing a church plan up there. Or maybe somebody that maybe God wants us to be praying for up there specifically. So I'll see if I can hunt down a name and maybe we can be praying for them. And so I talked to this guy on the phone and, and uh, you know, he said that he was maybe going to be doing a church plant. And he talked to me and told me a little bit about his deal. And, and uh, so I just thought, oh, maybe God wants us to pray for him. Um, fast forward about uh, a couple months, um, my wife and I just thought, you know, maybe God wants us to take a day trip up there. So on New Year's Day, I don't know, I think it might have been like 1992, somewhere around there, uh, we drove up. And uh, once we got here to San Luis, it was pouring rain, and all we had for lunch was Sizzler. Our day sucked. It was horrible. Sizzler, all right? It's, some of you might even remember Sizzler. It's not worth remembering. It was a horrible experience. It rained, and we had Sizzler. Nothing good about that day. And so we went home kind of discouraged. We're like, we had Sizzler and it rained. Like, why did God have us drive three and a half hours for Sizzler and rain? Like, that, that doesn't seem very nice. But we, we just kept praying. We're like, you know, maybe God wants us to go back to San Luis. I mean, we live down in Orange County, Huntington Beach. And so then um, a few months later, a few weeks later, we thought, you know, maybe God wants us to go up to San Luis and just check it out again. So we went up uh, this time for our wedding anniversary. I think it was our... Second year anniversary, is that right? Yes, I got it right. So I'm second year anniversary. My wife gave me the nod. So yeah, two years. And, and, the, and so we came up for our second year anniversary. And Saturday night, we'd come Friday, Saturday night, you know, we were just like, you know, I don't, I don't know, man. I'm not getting any vibes or, you know, no stars or an alignment. I'm sensing God telling us to move to San Luis. I haven't heard any audible voices, nothing. You know, it's just, I don't know what God wants. And so at this point, we were ready to just sell everything and move to San Luis Obispo. We didn't know anything about this place when we first came here. The only thing I knew about San Luis Obispo, honestly, is I had a peak, 
Pink Hotel. It's the only thing I knew of San Luis. I don't even think I really even knew that I had a college. I didn't really know much about slow. But the point of the matter was is that we were willing to do what God wanted us to do. And so we, we drove up here two weeks or two different times. And that Saturday night, we were sitting at a coffee shop downtown slow. And I'm like, you know, I don't, I don't feel like God's given us any, you know, writing in the sky, no arrangement of clouds that says move to slow, nothing. And uh, so we just kind of looked at each other. We prayed. We thought, well, you know what? Maybe God just was testing us to see if we'd be faithful to drive three and a half hours. You know, I mean, for us back in that day, that was, that was a long drive. And so um, we decided, let's just go to church the next morning and go home. We'll go back to our jobs and keep working and just be faithful to what God's called us to do down there. And that's about it. So we were happy to just basically do that. Next uh, morning, we went to church at a church down in Rio Grande. Uh, there were two services. We, I think we happened to maybe pick the second service, I think, if my memory serves me right. Um, after the service, the uh, pastor says, why don't you guys turn around and say hi to someone? We just so happened to be sitting behind a couple that was about our same age. Uh, his name was Chris. His wife's name was Jen. And uh, they were going out at the time. They were boyfriend and girlfriend. We got to chat with them, talk with them a little bit. Uh, it turns out, it just so happens that Chris grew up in Newport Beach. I just so happened to grow up in uh, uh, Huntington Beach, which is the real surf city, better than Newport Beach. And so we got to talking and stuff. And we talked about surf because he surfed, I surfed. And so... You know, that was kind of the way the conversation went. He asked us, you know, well, what church you guys go to? We told him, and he's like, no way, that was the church I went to. And, and, he, and he goes, why are you guys up here in slow? And he goes, he goes you guys aren't a couple that's, like, praying about moving up to San Luis, are you? And I look at my wife, and I'm like, that's kind of creepy. Like, yeah, we actually were. And he goes, this is the craziest thing. My girlfriend and I, we've been praying for three months that God would bring you guys up here. You know that phone call you made, like, back in, I don't know, September? I'm like, yeah, like that was, that was a fast conversation. He's all, well, that guy, I knew that guy. I just so happened to be in a Bible study with that guy. He just so happened to tell me that there was a couple that's praying about coming up to San Luis Obispo. So it just so happens to be that my girlfriend and I have been praying for three months that God would bring you up here. And it just so happens to be that you're in church, the very service that we're in, just so happens to be sitting behind us in this moment. And we're like, this is, this is not coincidental. This is God. This is God. Like, God, God's, God's plotting something here from start to finish. Like, like, we're not even finished yet. Like, God's still doing stuff here. And we're excited to be able to be in the middle of that and be a part of that. But my point is that even though my story doesn't entail the sense of, like, suffering and pain that Naomi's and Ruth's have, have but the reality is, is that the same ingredient is true, though, that God is still working behind the scenes even when we don't always see what he's doing, why he's doing, how he's doing it, even when rain and sizzler enters into the whole picture as well. Like God is still part of this whole thing. And it's possible. What if in the middle of your difficulties, what if God's actually plotting for your deep joy? In the midst of it all. Just like God was plotting for Ruth and Naomi's deep joy in the middle of the things that they found themselves in the middle of. I want to take a look at, real quickly, um, some important elements that I think the author of the book wants us to note about Naomi. It's really important things. First of all, the author emphatically wants us to know that she's a foreigner. Again, verse 2, Ruth the Moabitess. Later on, it goes on, describes her as a Moabitess. It really wants us to know that she just, she's out of place. She's not here. She will be brought in at some point, but now in the storyline, she just doesn't fit in. Maybe that's you. Maybe you look at yourself at certain circumstances and you're like, I don't feel like I fit in. 
Well, that's exactly the way Ruth was. Like, I, I don't fit in. I don't feel like I fit in. I'm a minority. I don't know where I sit here. I don't know if I'm accepted or acceptable. Um, and this is where she was. The second thing that we notice with regard to Ruth is that she's totally ignorant of the laws. Uh, verse 7, um, when she is, her story is kind of being rehearsed, um, when Boaz shows up on the field. And again, Boaz is a wealthy landowner. He's got a lot of money. And uh, just like maybe some of you guys are entrepreneurs, you own a business, um, maybe some of you don't show up at like 7 in the morning. You come strolling around 10 o'clock. You got your latte. That's what Boaz does. He comes walking in. He's like, what's up, guys? You know, and they're like, God bless you. And he's like, God bless you too. And, you know, and so there's sort of this exchange and interaction going on. And, and then they say, uh, you know, Boaz asks, you know, who's that lady? And then uh, they say that it's Ruth. And um, she is communicated as having asked to go on the field, which most scholars, uh, teachers have recognized that maybe this is the fact that she's ignorant of Jewish law. Because if she was familiar with the laws of gleaning, she would have been familiar with the fact that God had already made provision, so she didn't need to ask. It would be like, you know, a foreigner or maybe someone who's from out of town in San Luis walking up to a traffic cop. He's like downtown, you know, right between Gap and Ross. And, you know, can I cross right here? Is this like red, does this red path across here mean I can cross right here? Like, like you would immediately think, you're from out of town, aren't you? Right? Yeah, I'm from Sweden. Or like, okay. Um, and that would indicate the fact that probably she didn't know. She was unfamiliar with the laws of gleaning. So she asked, can I glean? Can I get some food? And uh, so she's ignorant of the laws. Thirdly, um, she's also a woman that has a lot of integrity. Um, she could have stolen. I mean, th- I mean, the story, can you imagine the storyline kind of being told? Like, and then Ruth went down to the farmer's market and stole a loaf of bread. Like, it wouldn't be as beautiful as it, it is, right? Or like, but Ruth found a corner and stole a bunch of grain. Like, that's not how the storyline goes. That she actually goes and she asks someone. She's, she's not being devious. She's not being wicked. She actually is a woman full of integrity and honesty. And so she asks. The fourth thing we see is that she's courageous. And it's kind of an interesting little insight. In verse 7, she actually asks for two things, which is really interesting, insightful. She says this. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheep. So she asked for two things. She asked, one, can I glean, which is what you would do after the gatherers left the field, but she adds something to that. She says, can I also gather behind the reapers? So you can imagine the reapers are there with their thing, and she's asking, can I follow right behind them and gather what they drop right then? This woman's super bold. And this is, I mean, it's just like, again, think of the tenacity of this woman. She's not nasty. She's not rude. She's not pushy. But she desperately is driven by said, love for Naomi, her widowed mother-in-law, who's in the throes of torment, of soul, and hardship, and Ruth is driven by love, and she says she'll do anything, even, even bend the rules, stretch the rules in order to, to shower and to show love. This is amazing, because you know what she does? you got to understand something a little bit about God's law. God has the letter of the law, which is, like, here's what the Bible says. Um, You shall let the field be harvested once, and then after the harvest, uh, keep the corners 
from being gleaned or from harvested. Let the corners be free and let them only harvest once, your workers, and then let the rest of the field be able to be gleaned by the poor people of the land. God says, because I'm God, and I want people to know how merciful and gracious and compassionate I am towards those people that have absolutely nothing. Okay, so the reality is, is that God made these provisions for this to happen, and Boaz could have been like, well, the letter of the law says I'm supposed to let you glean, so no, only I'll let you glean, and that's it, period. Like, like you can wait until the reapers are done, and then after the reapers are done, because the letter of the law says only, you know, only glean after the reapers are gone. But she actually pushes the letter of the law into the spirit of the law, because the letter of the law says leave the field to let it be gleaned. The spirit of the law says Feed the poor. So feed those who are hungry. Can, this is one of the reasons why the spirit of the law, or I should say just living according to the letter of the law, can oftentimes lead life, uh, bring to death. Because oftentimes people motivated by just simply saying, well, there's no verse that says I can do that, so I can't do that. But what does, what does the intention of the law says? What is God's heart? What's God's intention? What's God's desire? God's desire is to make certain that those that are hurting, those that are poor, those that are impoverished, those that have been subjected to great difficulty and turmoil, that they'd be well taken care of. And so Ruth has this tenacity to stretch, stretch the letter on into the spirit. And she says, I'm hungry. My mother-in-law's hungry. Can I please follow behind the reapers and gather as much as I can? And here's what I love about this. Boaz actually capitulates and says, sure, I like your tenacity. I mean, I, I can just imagine him in his mind thinking, I love the fact that this woman is willing to bend the rules, to push the standard norms, to do what is not necessarily correct in the eyes of the culture, just to get to the intention of the heart. I see Jesus in the middle of this. Like, imagine Jesus when he was alive. The letter of the law says, be clean, for I'm clean. Be pure, for I'm pure. Be holy, for I'm holy. So you have the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the law, that are like, God says, be holy. That means interpretation. Don't hang out with scum, whores, tax collectors, people that steal. Don't hang out with those people. Here's what Jesus says. I'm gonna go have dinner with a whore. There's people that were legalists, strict to the letter of the law, flipped. And Jesus says, the spirit of the law says, love those that are hurting. These are people that are hurting. Boaz capitulates. You know what I see in Boaz, which is amazing? He actually grows as a man because of the tenacity of this woman that doesn't really quite understand the rules but she's willing to go beyond things and ask for things that are just, and I actually even see in this little story of the book of Ruth, Jesus' little parable. I can just kind of hear that in the background where Jesus is like, there's a woman. She came one day to me and she asked for bread. And Jesus says, no, 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 the bread is only to be given to the children of the king. And she says, but yes, Lord, even the dogs get to eat the crumbs. And Jesus is like, oh my gosh, 
I love this woman. She was not a Jew. But Jesus looks at this woman and says, even as a non-Jew, you have this tenacity that just desperately, eagerly wants to be where the king's at. And Jesus says, you're going to have your fill. And that's exactly what happens with Ruth, is Ruth has this sense about her where she's very courageous. Uh, the fifth thing I see is that she's got this dignity, this sense of dignity about her. Again, God provides in the law the sense where, look, if you're poor, um, the intention of the law was not for you to sit around and just expect someone to give you a handout. That, that was not God's biblical ideal, all right? It's not at all. In fact, there's no dignity in, dignity in that. That's not dignified. There is dignity in working hard. And in the particular sense of the law, God actually set up a situation so that the people would work. And they, by working, they would actually have something to show for it with their hands. And that God loved his people enough so that they would actually begin to fulfill what God called them to be, which are image bearers of himself. God images himself. God reveals himself through people who work. Now, how many of us actually look at our work and think of our work as actually being worship? Most of us don't think of our work as being worship. We think of, I'll go to worship on Sunday, and then Monday, I gotta go to work. But most of us don't ever think of our work as actual worship. Now, if you're a mom, your work is cut out for you all the time, 24 hours, nonstop, because you always have somebody hanging on you, calling you, wanting you, demanding you. That's hard work. But most people don't view their work as actually being acts of worship. And the Bible's going to tell us that God actually designed and created so that work would be our form of worship. I'll give you an example. The Bible talks about this as being us called to cultivate the earth. Part of cultivation implies taking things that are broken, things that are not complete, and bringing about a sense of wholeness. That's what cultivation of the ground is all about. It's taking raw, raw dirt, sowing you know, uh, rows in it, planting seeds in it, watering it, cultivating it, doing the things that you need to do in order for there to be life to come into that. Um, we cultivate things. If you're a musician, you write music, you're gifted in that particular area, what you're doing is you're actually cultivating sounds. You're taking sort of all these sounds out there that are nothing but dissonance, and you're bringing them into some semblance of order. What you're doing is you're cultivating. You're imaging God. That's what art is. When you take various types of colors and you put it onto a canvas, you take all sorts of random colors and you bring them together in some sort of patchwork or some sort of um, art that creates order out of a sense of chaos. That's cultivating. And God would look at all of that and say, I created man so that they would image me in what they do so that I would be glorified and they would find great joy. And so God created work not so that it would be mundane or boring or just something we have to do with the fall when mankind sinned work became labor that's when work started being horrible you know that's where we find it we're like this is hard it makes me sweaty i have the funk afterwards i don't like work but before the fall god says i created this i've given you work so that you can image me in the things that you do so that moms you're cultivating kids to be godly Children, dads, you are doing your work, whether it's a musician, an artist, an architect, a landscaper, whatever it is that you do, you're using your hands to cultivate righteousness, and with that is worship, and with that is dignity. And this is where Ruth found herself. She was dignified, because she wasn't below a sense of a hard day's labor of work. Sixth one, i got to move real quickly here. 
6'1", she's really strong. I wrote in my notes, she's not girly, she's burly, all right? Verse 17, we're not going to read this for the most part today, but she's given 30 pounds of grain, and we're told in verse 18, she carries it home. All right, how many women do you know can pick up a 30-pound bag of cement, throw it over their shoulder, and just walk however many miles home? Like, that's, like, that's, that's amazing, all right? That's Ruth. She's carrying 30 pounds of grain. She's a burly girl. All right, seven. She has this reputation of trusting God and serving Naomi. Verse 11 makes that clear. The eighth thing that I notice in verse 11 also, Boaz informs her. I'll just read it to you because it's beautiful. She says this. He says this, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward is given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Here's Ruth looking at her life, saying we need food, and we need a family, because we have no one to protect us, no one to cover us, no one to shield us. And here she wakes up one morning and says, I got to go find food. It just so happens she comes to Boaz's field. God's leading her steps. Just so happens at the end of the day, Boaz gives her what amounts to almost a month's worth of food in a day. 30 pounds of grain. It's amazing how much she's given. But the reality is, is that Boaz informs her the reason why you've come to this field, the reason why our paths have crossed is because you're under the wings of God. He's protecting you. He loves you. He cares for you. So that's what the author wants us to know about Ruth. And finish up with this, almost done in verse 4, says this, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. He said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. And I love this. Uh, again, you just get this picture of your boss come walking in. Let's say if you're working in a business where there's cubicles, your boss comes in. It's about maybe mid-morning, 10 o'clock. He's got a latte in his hand. He's like, What's up, guys? God bless you. And everybody shouts back like a bunch of moles out of their cubicles. The Lord bless thee. You know, I just imagine like this musical, the Lord bless thee. You know, and they're all singing back and just this beautiful picture. But what it tells us, I think the narrator wants us to see, is that the name of Yahweh is on their lips. This is so important to the storyline because we're told at the very beginning of the book, that this whole story takes place in the time of the judges. The judges was the darkest, bleakest period of the people of Israel's history. Evil ruled the land. The last verse of the entire book says everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It was literal anarchy. But here in the middle of the book of Ruth, we actually see that there is one tribe with one clan, with one family, and whose God's name is on his lips. That God is not fully forsaken his people, that even in the midst of great darkness, there's still people who are faithful to Jehovah. We see that demonstrated through Boaz. Verse 5, then Boaz said to the young man uh, who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And again, let me just pause real quick and say this. A lot of times we read this, and maybe by traditional ways in which we read this, we immediately want to see this as like a Jane Austen novel, right? We immediately like romanticize it. We're like, you know, there's Boaz. It's like, holy cow, who's that? Like, you know, we immediately, her hair's flowing in the wind, and his hair's flowing in the wind. He looks like Fabio, and, you know, shirt's unbuttoned. It's a hot day, and he's, he's just, like, standing like this, and, like, who's that, you know? And she looks up at the moment. She's like, what's up? You know, winks. And, you know, and we immediately want to romanticize this. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think that's right, and I'll tell you why. 
<laughs> That's why. Boaz is a man of impeccable character. He's a man of God. He's not like some, you know, fraternity dude who's out there scamming on a weak foreigner trying to get her into some sort of illicit relationship. That's not Boaz. In fact, if you think of it that way, you actually cheapen the storyline. You turn it into a romance novel. When in reality, I think the lessons that God is wanting to say here are so profound that what you see from a guy like with sterling character like Boaz is a man who actually fears God. And he's a man through whom God's going to show said. God's going to show kindness through Boaz. Because he looks at this woman. First of all, she's a woman. Second of all, she's a foreigner. Third of all, everybody knows she's infertile. She's not a suitable wife for a man of upstanding character like Boaz, especially in a culture that says you marry to have babies. That would put Ruth out of completely out of the league of being a suitable wife for him. So don't think of Boaz coming on the field, winking his eye, looking at Ruth, and just automatically there was this like romance. That could be the case. There's nothing in the text that would support that. I'm just simply saying, look at, I think the storyline is trying to be told to us by the narrator that I think Boaz is a man of upright character. He's a man that actually reflects God, who looks at the foreigner, who looks at the undesirable one and says, I want to help you. Just because you're here. That's the way God works. Take a look at Boaz, and I'm done. First of all, he's a man of valor. We're told that in the first verse, which means that he was a man of great might and power. Secondly, it can also mean that he was a man of material wealth, probably both. Uh, we're told that he was a man that honored, or, you know, we're, very clearly in the story, he's a man that honored God. We know that because he was actually adhering to the reaping laws. Like, again, in the time during the judges where everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes, you have a guy like Boaz who's like, no, I'm going to honor God. I'm going to honor God with my field, my work, my career, my vocation is going to be something that will be my worship. There's no bifurcation. There's no distinction between my work and my worship. They're all the same. I worship my God. And then we also see finally that he was a man that served others. And this is where I see this, this beautiful relationship beginning to develop where Boaz comes on the field. He notices this foreigner woman here who doesn't belong. She's totally obvious uh, where she's ignorant. She doesn't understand anything. She's gone through incredibly horrific suffering over the past few years. Like I said, she's infertile. She's not a suitable wife. But Boaz looks at her and demonstrates incredible kindness to this, this lowly woman. Boaz is an amazing guy. And I think really what we learn from this is that God oftentimes uses just these regular people going about their regular days throughout their lives being instruments which God uses to bring about his extraordinary plans. You know that throughout the book of Ruth, one of the things that we begin to realize is that God's means of actually helping people. So you can look at Ruth and be like, you know, Ruth needs God's intervention, all right? And so the reality is going to be like, Where's God? Like, how is God going to answer this? Ruth needs God to show up. Well, you know what happens? Is God doesn't show up. Boaz does. And some of you like, well, how come God didn't show up? God showing up and Boaz showing up are the same thing. 
that God was working through Boaz to bless this lady that didn't deserve anything. In the same way Paul tells us, God was actually working through Christ to reconcile us to himself. You know, sometimes we, we forget this. We forget the fact that God works oftentimes in the most common ways. We, especially I think in our culture, and it's not just our culture, it's throughout all history, we have this tendency where we're like, we only think of God working when we see the miraculous. Crazy signs and wonders come down from heaven. Crazy scenarios taking place. Those are typically moments where we're like, man, God was really working right there, because check that out. There's a rainbow that was in the sky, or rain suddenly came down, or someone's limb suddenly grew back, or whatever the case is, or someone was raised from the dead. God was totally working. But the reality is, it's almost like likening to power tools in a refrigerator. You can whip out a power tool and be like, I got power, it's in my hand, and I will demonstrate it with amazing acts of might. But the reality is, no one ever looks at the refrigerator and is like, oh my gosh, it's on. <laughs> and it's like, it's the most amazing tool of all because it's always keeping our food perfect temp. It's making sure that the bacon never spoils and that's very important. <laughs> but no one ever looks at that and be like, it's amazing, it's the most incredible tool that I have because we want power. We love power, we love mighty displays. But you know what? God is always working, always working, always doing things behind the scenes. And that's what we see in the book of Ruth. He's always working. Sometimes we pray. We're like, God, do something. Do you know that oftentimes the way that God wants to do something is through you? I'll give you an example. If you're a dad, like, I want my kids to know Jesus. Do you know that the way that God will probably answer that prayer is by you? You? discipling your kids, you sitting down, reading the Bible to them, you coaching them along, you leading them in prayer, you being a good faithful pastor daddy at home. So you can't just be like, God, save them. God, show them Jesus. And you do nothing. That's not how God works. I mean, you might find people in your lives even today that are suffering, going through hard times. You know, maybe they just had a great loss or something happened or they're not able to mow their lawn or some sort of tragedy has befallen them. And you're like, Lord, take care of them. God, just somehow provide for them. Well, you know what? Maybe God wants you to go over to their house and say, can I, can I mow your lawn? Can I bring you some food? You know, can I maybe watch your kids for, you know, a few days so that, you know, you and your husband and I are going through some really hard times. God, get away, have a date. Or, you know, can I, can I help you? Can I serve you? That's what Ruth does to Naomi. She, you know, you see prayer all the time throughout the book, but you know what you oftentimes see is the answers to prayer are always in the form of human beings. All the time. You know that's how God wants to work? God actually chooses to use human instruments to write out the most incredible story of redemption ever. Do you know that that's how it all started? In the word became flesh dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, that God himself became a man, embodied his grace, died on the cross, and the greatest tragedy in Jesus' life became God's means of continuing or beginning or 
going forth with this incredible story of redemption. Do you know that that's how God continues to do things in this life? So if you want to be part of God's plan, God's solution, God's kingdom, you've got to see yourself not separate from helping, but being a part of one that God wants to empower. It's one of the reasons why Paul actually uses the metaphor that Christians are actually the body of Christ who happens to be the head. That literally, we, we are God's means. God wants to enlist us in the same way he enlisted two impoverished, two widowed, suffering, depressed ladies to enlist them, to bring them into one of the most greatest stories of redemption ever told. Is it possible that the tragedies that you're going through today right now in your life, that behind all those things that God is actually working something for your deep joy? There's a song and there's a line in it that says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Is it possible that what to you, you interpret as God not liking you in your life today, behind that frowning providence, God's actually got this big smile you just haven't seen yet? Is it possible that's what God's doing? That's what the story of Ruth's all about. That's what the story of the cross is all about. I'm going to pray. We're going to respond. I'm going to have Mikey come on up right now. And what I want for us to do right now as we respond in worship is to just, we're going to also partake of communion. If, as you guys feel led, we have communion in the back. Please consider the fact that God loves to work in pictures. He loves to work in pictures. The book of Ruth is a picture of God's grace, God's said in action. The cross is a picture of God's grace, God's said in action. Because some of us are so dull, we don't get it when we read it. So God is so good, so gracious, and so kind. It's as if he says, look, if you don't get it through reading it, through black and white, God says, I want you to get it through a picture. I want you to get it in any format possible. So God demonstrates his love for us. And Jesus initiates and institutes what we would describe as a community. Gives us the bread, gives us the cup, and says, when you eat the bread, remember, I suffered. You're not alone. Remember, you've not been forgotten, forsaken. That because I suffered for you, God is working all things together for your good. He's not forgotten you. He's not forsaken you. He's actually plotting behind the scenes for your good. Don't judge God incorrectly. For some of us, we may need to repent. We may need to confess to God the ways in which we've misjudged him. Don't misunderstand me. God does not scorn us for questioning him. God, why is this happening? God, why would you cause this to take place to me? God does not scorn our pain. He doesn't tell us to somehow stop feeling the pain that we feel. God knows that we're in a world where there's a lot of pain. God doesn't scorn us for that. But what God does is he enters into our story and says, I know what that pain feels like. I've been there. 
And I know what's on the other side of that pain. Behind the tomb <laughs> is a womb. Life is coming. When the field's been plowed and the earth has been scarred, it's because the seed's been sown in there and life's coming. God says, I'm working things together for the good of those who trust me, who love me, who come to take refuge in the shadow of my wing. So we're going to respond. If uh, you have kids here that may need to be picked up, you can pick them up in like in about 10, 15 minutes or so. That'd be great. Just make sure you can relieve the class workers. But definitely, let's just worship. Let's respond to God. Let's partake of communion. For some of us, let's repent. Ask God to forgive us of our sins and renew a right spirit within us to bring us back to Jesus, bring us back to the cross and help us to see God's love revealed to us through Jesus. Let's pray. Let's worship. God, thank you for the cross. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve the fruit of it. God, in fact, so oftentimes we, we are guilty of just nonstop complaints. God, maybe for some of us, um, we're in the midst of pain and we don't even have enough strength to complain. We're just, we're still in that moment of shock. And God, what we need in that moment is comfort. So Lord, I ask you right now that you would help us just to fix your eyes on Jesus, to see his great love for us and that we would trust you, look to you, love you and have our hearts renewed and our eyes replaced and God, the default mode of our heart which just keeps going back to sin, keeps going back to those things that keep us bound and keep us lifeless. God, that we would lay those things at the cross and we would find that it's really your intention, your desire to free us so that we would have joy. So help us right now, God, as we respond.